You're listening to the Skylight Books Podcast. We're an independent, general interest bookstore putting great reads in the hands of people in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles. Hosted by resident Skylighters, we're here to bring you new and exciting author conversations, group reads, and bookseller chats. Happy listening. Hello, everyone, and thank you so much for joining us on the Skylight Books Crowdcast channel. My name is Natalie. I'm the Assistant Events Manager at Skylight, and we are so thrilled that you could join us to celebrate A Minor Chorus by Billy Rigg Belcourt. We are so happy to have you here, and we're so excited that Billy is joining us from Canada, uh, up in Vancouver, in our own time zone, as we were saying in the green room. <laughs> um, never been to Skylight. We're a general interest, independent bookstore serving the lowest speed listening neighborhood of Los Angeles. If you're local, we'd love to see you in store where we have copies of A Minor Chorus along with Billy Ray's other works. And you can purchase a copy of A Minor Chorus if you haven't gotten yours yet by clicking the green button at the bottom of your screen. And without further ado, I will go ahead and introduce you to our guest. And then we'll get a little bit of a reading and some info on A Minor Chorus. We'll chat for a little bit. And then if anyone in the audience has any questions, you can submit them into the chat on the right-hand side of your screen or by using the ask a question button at the bottom, and we will get to those a little bit later. So without further ado, Billy Ridbelcourt is a writer from the Drakwal Creation. He is an assistant professor in the School of Creative Writing at the University of British Columbia and the author of three books of poetry and nonfiction, and now a novel. He lives in Vancouver. Thanks so much for being here, Billy Ray. Yes, uh, so happy to be here. I'm going to read from the start of the second chapter, A Gust of Life. And I don't think I have to set anything up. It should be um, pretty evident <laughs> what's happening. On dating apps, I sometimes ask men to describe the texture of their grief. If I wasn't immediately blocked, most spouted platitudes or said something like, are you looking or not? Those who did make it to my door were brief, nameless, untalkative. Usually they wanted me to be a room they could govern the limits of, paint a new shade of blue, hungry topaz, hungry sapphire. I developed the habit of hooking up with men after long evenings of working on my dissertation, of writing into the void, hurling myself at myself. For a while, this felt like an extension of my work mostly because my sadness and horniness had become inextricably entangled. Perhaps unsurprisingly, neither what I wrote nor whom I met at all hours of the night made me feel much else other than dim and indistinct. What I wanted from sex, I wanted from writing, to be more fully inside my body without encumbrance, to experience embodiment as something other than a catch-22. My body felt so thoroughly overdetermined by forces outside of me, yet it was the source of my livability. It literally coursed with life, even as life was something I was being deprived of. Love, art, these were small portals. They allowed for transcendence. Maybe there was a kind of danger in how ravenous I was for that which placed me beside the present. It was too late in the day to fully pursue this epiphany to its logical end. So I opened Grinder. I ended up messaging with a therapist. He'd heard of me, seen me around campus, which terrified me, ruptured the allure of anonymity. I was less interested in having sex with him and more interested in his knowledge, which I suppose is also a kind of eroticism. He asked me to send another photo to be sure I was who I said I was. I sent him a candid photo my friend River had taken one afternoon at a campground about an hour east of the city. In it, you could see the tattoos on my knuckles, which spelled out my username, Cree Homo. In my early 20-something mind, the act was an homage to Roland Barthes' famous declaration that language is a kind of skin. I interpreted the aphorism literally wanted to turn my body into a book of sad poems. I convinced myself that, that, that the tattoo would amount to a small refusal of the ways colonial systems demanded my invisibility. I hadn't yet understood that visibility 
begot its own kind of endangerment. He told me that the tattoo was sexy, that I was handsome, and sometimes that was all it took to win me over. So when he asked if he could come over, I said yes. On my couch, surrounded by wobbly towers of books about loneliness and state-sanctioned depression, we talked for just laughing because there's a tower of wobbly books behind me. Um, we talked for an hour about how I thought the body was a human invention, a ruse, a story that's easy to digest. I told him about how it had been easy to pretend the sounds of the brutal earth weren't mounting to a crescendo around me. I didn't care if my woundedness was unsexy. All of this was ugly work. Surprisingly, he wasn't turned off by my honesty. In fact, it aroused him, made him feel like he was someone I could empty onto. He experienced it as an intensity, a gravity pulling at him. It was late and I was lonely and I was in rehearsal for another kind of life. So I drew the blinds and unbuttoned his jeans. It was all over in 30 minutes. Thank you. Thank you so much for uh, for taking us into this uh, semi-autobiographical world with a leaning tower of books behind you, <laughs> as we read. Um, I I truly I loved this book so much, and I'm so uh, happy to chat about it with you. Um, and also, we we won't talk so much about the the, the narrative trajectory of the book because I want everyone to experience that for themselves um but there's so much sort of back and forth stream of consciousness we can mm -hmm. we can have which I'm really excited about um so to start based on the the start of that chapter that you read us um there's a a theme that's sort of introduced early on about writing being a social act uh inherently mm -hmm. uh because the narrator in this book brings that topic up uh with the understanding that they write because they have read and been moved by uh by other works that other people have read so inherently it is a a social act but then also in the part of the chapter that you read us there is also that's an example of the extreme loneliness Mm -hmm. the the act of writing itself mm -hmm. um can be and so i love the idea of those uh those two ideas bumping up against each other in in the way that it is extremely social because when there are tons of other great writers and work that are mentioned throughout this book too that definitely mm. had influence on formed it and then now it exists as a thing to be socially taken in by other people um and other people read it along the way while you're working on it but also you wrote it alone mm -hmm. um by yourself and so i'd i'd love to hear uh some of your thoughts or how you feel about those two ideas kind of bumping into each other mm -hmm. i'll just begin with the concept of the minor chorus so there are at least two kinds of choruses in the book there's the cast of characters that the protagonist interviews whose testimony adds up to something like a kind of music about the place that they're from there's also the chorus that is the writers that i cite uh, that the protagonist thinks with throughout the novel that matter to me because it's not new to say that all literature is a product of other literature. I simply wanted to make that evident in the writing, in, in all of my writing, really. And on the topic of loneliness and the way that writing both plunges us into our loneliness and promises to rescue us from it, I think that's like a 
paradox that I've been endlessly thinking about. Even today, I like literally before logging on to this as uh, crowdcast, I wrote a short poem uh, about loneliness. I'll, it's really short. I'll just read it quickly. Um, yeah. The world is too close, said Lauren Berlant. We want it, but we can't bear it alone. The anxiety to define my loneliness, but not transform it into property. To build a room to think in, but not get trapped. What if love doesn't save me? What if at the end of my life, there is more life? I suppose, to me, the character in the novel is trying to find a way to write out of his loneliness. But as he says at the start of the book, he can't figure out how to do that because he's alone all the time. The act of writing a dissertation is especially lonely. And so he decides that he has to abandon that project and so the novel makes sense to him as someone who as someone who studied the novel as a form it made sense to him that he could turn to it for something more social and then the, i suppose the rest of the plot is about whether or not that is actually the case and the we talked a little bit in the green room of just about the idea of the novel in general, um, mm -hmm. which is a huge part of this uh, uh, this novel, and which you just mentioned is sort of a catalyst. The idea of the novel is a catalyst that moves the protagonist forward. Um, so I was curious how long you have either wanted to write a novel or mm -hmm. felt like you had to write a novel or felt like you had a novel in you that wasn't there yet um and how you or how you decided that now was the time for you to write this novel or your novel mm -hmm. that's an interesting question it i wonder i'm wondering if anyone has a novel in them <laughs> or that hmm. <laughs> do you think we're someone who the greatest novels do you think like Toni Morrison was born with her novels in her <laughs> the seeds of them at least yeah that's an interesting question because I I think that not all living is novelistic mm -hmm. and not all novels are like life um so I think there's a way that we can impose some kind of shape to our living that becomes a novel. I think of the uh, the protagonist of uh, Red Pill, Hari Kunzru's novel. He says something like, uh, plot is how we impose reality onto the plotlessness of life. So then if you follow that line of thinking, you know, um, but the, the novel then is a, a total fabric a fabrication, something, a sort of a frame that we impose. Um, but nonetheless, in 2018, and some folks I know who are here have already heard this story, but I'll repeat it nonetheless. In 2018, I suddenly became transfixed with the idea of writing a novel, partly because um, of certain, I think, ideas about what a, a writing life meant or how to how to sustain a writing life but also because there are certain ideals that novel writing represents and this is my thinking in relation to Roland Barthes again this concept of the fantasy of the novel and I was in that fantasy and it occurred to me at some point after writing a bunch of stuff that didn't amount to anything, that if I was going to write a novel, it had to be about Northern Alberta, partly because that's the place I knew best. And also because it has 
not been taken up in Canadian literature. And I think that Northern Alberta is a place where so much of his, so many historical forces are operating, though they don't always get perceived as such. And something that I loved about this novel to you, um, building off how you mentioned plot being the the sort of circumstances that we add to life to make it worth talking about um, mm -hmm. <laughs> to build it. Um, one of the things I loved so much about a minor chorus was how just how ordinary it felt, but in the mm -hmm. in the best way that it was towards the beginning, it very much felt a little bit like a monologue. Um, yeah, that I really wish I was like experiencing. I would it was a it felt like a conversation that I wanted so desperately to be a part of. Um, mm -hmm. Those questions, those kinds of questions raised and topics that you talk about a lot in your work, grief and just vulnerability and humanness mm -hmm. um, just acknowledging humanity and acknowledging sadness and people's experiences and asking what they mean and what we do with them and all of these things. Those are just like small bits of much larger questions, but it it was a conversation that I want to like give this book to people and be like, okay, read this and then let's sit down and talk about it for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, let's just have, let's not talk about the, the news or what we watch on TV. Like let's talk about how we feel and the way things are making us feel and how we're experiencing things. Um, and it felt so human and those are conversations I like to try to have. And I think that's why I say it felt ordinary mm -hmm. um, because it didn't feel fabricated. Yeah. I didn't, it didn't feel like a human conversation that you had to add plot mm -hmm. to, to make it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was inspired in a way by how people in my life generally take up larger structural questions of living and suffering but in incredibly ordinary language as you say mm -hmm. now these are conversations that sort of organically arise at the kitchen table or during family gatherings or sort of in the in the corner of a family gathering when everyone else is talking about something else and i thought what if i sort of engineered these circumstances where people could theorize about their lives, um, especially the kind of people who are not encouraged to do so or who are not given the opportunity to do so. And also the, um, oh, I just had a thought fully, just flew right away from me. Um, Shit. Well, I hope it comes back because it was sitting <laughs> there. But, um, but it's going to build up that, and it completely flew away. I watched it just. Um, but another thing that I wanted to talk to you in terms of um, sort of those questions and how they like asking those questions and having the conversations and the way that they um, sometimes can be. Uh, either boxed in or like pigeonholed as adult conversation in the sense that like adolescents or kids aren't thinking about those things or mm -hmm. these big, bigger questions or um, that children can't uh, experience suffering in the same way that maybe adults can um, or grief in all these different ways um, mm -hmm. and so having these conversations and having them uh, at the characters' ages, which I'm, I think, I don't know if I mentioned, but uh, I'm assuming you're like late 20s, early 30s. Yeah, some of them, I imagine, it's not mentioned, but some of them are, like the range is like 
early 20s to, yeah. to you know, the elder elderhood. And yeah, and I was thinking specifically of the protagonist in the river, um, because what I was thinking about was uh, I love that this line and this exchange happens because it's something that I say to my friends often, which is I want to be like you when I grow up. <laughs> um, <laughs> as like fairly grown adults, I love that sentiment. And I, I say it to my friends often, like they'll do something or say something the way that River has just explained something where the protagonist says, like, you continue to do that. Like you continue mm-hmm. to amaze me in this way. You're just guest. Um, you continue to amaze me in this way. And I really hope that I can capture some of that mm-hmm. energy and uh and that uh magic and have part of it in my next life whenever that's gonna start. Um mm-hmm. so the idea of just can and that's a sort of continued learning uh theme, which is also a part of being in academia in general and writing in general because like you said you can't you can't write or it's I would say it's very difficult to write anything you haven't read anything that has moved you to feel like you have something to say or you're trying Mm to articulate something in that way so the idea of um continuing to take things in and sort of mash these experiences around and figure out what they mean and interrogate them is such a lovely idea that I'm, I was happy to see between like grown friends. Like I'm going to continue growing with you um, mm-hmm. and continue. Growing, and you inspire me to do that, which I feel like is a sentiment. I, I don't often see in, uh, in novels between characters. They're always fighting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you know, I, part of my interest in, friendship and in, in, in queer friendship in particular is you know the, the, the protagonist in the novel uh has a strained relationship with his mother and um in a way does not have a father and so the rather than abandon himself he turns to friends and to other queer relationships where the project of mothering or or tending to others is not a biological expectation, but a social one. Again, coming back to the question of sociality, um, and you know, River, I you know, was a later addition to the work, but as soon as I added them, it is it sort of something came into focus, and I was like, okay, I don't think the novel <laughs> you know, helps stay, you know, there their energy helps stabilize the novel's emotional architecture. Yeah. It was there. That's so funny that they were like added later because uh, River and the protagonist have such a, like starting the, the novel off with that friendship is mm-hmm. so, like you said, it's very stabilizing, um, especially with the protagonist feeling lost um really just to echo what you uh just said that when a character is lost a lot of times um an, a writer may like continue to distance them so that they that's where the stakes come in sort of is that they they are continually backing away from people cutting off relationships and keeping themselves in to a corner or a writer may push them into a corner to see what they do when they've hit like the pit of complete and total isolation mm-hmm. um which i we also talked a little bit about um certain kinds of grief in the in mm-hmm. the and how the grief that you write about often um feels so so visceral and is an interrogation of the many different pathways that grief comes from mm-hmm. um that idea of pushing someone to the absolute brink of isolation feels like a a fabricated plot point that 
is really not necessary like to the point of mm-hmm. torture but it's not right. it's not right. very to do a character no matter how you feel about them what their their art may be um and so and it's something that's used often like i said as a as a device to fabricate situations and it was also refreshing to see this protagonist talk so much about this loneliness but then seek out interaction mm-hmm. uh, and like you said, the idea of the novel itself being something that would uh, give them the opportunity to bump up against that loneliness mm-hmm. um, and a way to interact rather than retreating. Um, so that's just a, it's a refreshing concept and also something that, like we've been saying, was done so organically. and. Mm-hmm. And again, didn't feel uh, fabricated. And then, on the uh, on the note of river, I wanted to. Oh yes, uh, there's a text message that River sends to the uh, protagonist, which you, since you've mentioned uh, queer friendships, <laughs> that poetic uh, anguish as a queer condition, like solely is just a queer condition. And <laughs> after a text message. But the protagonist sends uh, sends River. That was their reply, and I loved that uh, a lot. And I'm sure that you have you could say a few words about that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So there's a a, a a thread of texting throughout the novel between the protagonist and River, partly because that was how that's how I relate to my own friends and to, to my queer friends in particular. So there's just this constant stream of texting going on. <laughs> um, but it it opened up for me this opportunity to um, sort of include jokes, queer jokes, and a bit of philosophizing that I hoped wouldn't feel you know, superfluous or or pretentious, but you know, part of the lexicon of of queer interaction, you know, contemporary queer interaction. Also, I should turn on light because I'm fully just disappearing into darkness. <laughs> so uh, I'll I'll be right back. We're gonna add some light here. <laughs> Um, and for all of our viewers up there, if you have, have any questions for Billy Ray about a minor chorus or anything that you'd like us to ask, again, feel free to drop those in the chat bar on your right and in the ask a question button at the bottom of your screen. You can also say hello in the chat and drop in any comments or questions that you have because we can see them and we'll shout them out. Um, and also while we're, while we're talking about River, something, uh, that I wanted to talk about, which I have not, like, been involved, I'm not a writer, not been involved in, or a part of the academic world, uh, ever since college, and even then, it, I wouldn't have noticed it, but you mentioned something that I think, as one, uh, involved in academia, you could speak to, which I had never I've never heard this sort of said or um, this idea floated, but I'm sure that it often is amongst writers, um, which is part of the conversation the protagonists in River are having earlier on when River recalls someone telling them that they're lucky to be able to be a writer from lived experience, mm-hmm. um, to write from their lived experiences that they've, how, how lucky you are that you've suffered so um that, that you can turn that pain into art like you must be so grateful um which written the way like that idea presented the way it was um was so interesting to me because it also seemed like a very unself-aware thing to say to anybody like i, I would never say that to anybody. Yeah. um yeah and uh but again, ha- having not, I'm not a writer and not being involved in like academia, I could, I could see that that 
idea would be put into a conversation in that way. Um, so I'd love to hear more about that um, idea sort of, because it also plays into the um, the idea of writing the not the protagonist idea of writing the mm -hmm. novel um, in general. And I'm sure yours a little bit, uh, there's another section about uh, the English language being to compromise uh, to be able to write anything that wasn't about um, relishing in someone's pain or oppression, if that mm -hmm. is what they're struggling um, since the English language existed. Um, so those two things uh, kind of dovetailed together at different points in the story. And I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So this, the sentiment that the narrator reflects on about being told that they're lucky to have suffered so that they can transform it into art, into, 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 you know, theoretical work is something I've seen expressed on social media. I've seen heard instances of people being told something to that effect, um, which is about, it's an anxiety of identity and positionality that is projected onto writers of color, queer writers and whatnot. There's a way that literary culture is shifting away from the myth of universality that causes panic in certain kinds of writers, primarily white writers. Um, but, you know, but interestingly, the, you know, the, 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 no, the Nobel Prize still holds on to that myth of universality. And so they say all the time that the works that they select are, you know, works that can speak to everybody and across yeah. cultures. <laughs> exactly. Um, but sort of, I wanted to include that just to add to the, the, the matrix of problems that the university represents for someone like the protagonist and you know to show that the university ultimate ultimately won't bring about the conditions of uh the protagonist's freedom and there are a number of reasons why and the book gestures to some of them hopefully with enough uh depth to make to make the decision to leave um uh, reasonable, <laughs> but and you know, just to quickly go to your other question about you know what can the English language do for a queer Indigenous writer and for a queer Indigenous writer who wants to write a novel? I keep thinking about something that the um, Iranian poet Salma Sharif said at a at a event that was. Uh, archived on YouTube and she says, English is the language of my dispossession. Sort of like, like her, English is also the language of my dispossession. In a way, I, I don't have a mother tongue. I don't speak the Cree language. I know it in bits and pieces, but there's, but I have, so I live with the fact of that languagelessness you know, English mm -hmm. is a compromise that I didn't get to choose. And I continue to investigate that compromise in my work because still some kind of work can be made and we can still gesture to beauty with the language that is the source of our dispossession. And, you know, what do we, what am I, what do we make of that? seemingly contradictory fact. And then real quick before we get to, we got a handful of questions that mm -hmm. came in, but to that note, um, another thing that we sort of talked about um, briefly in the green room was that this, when you decided that you were going to write a novel, uh, it was always, or it was going to be a novel about pushing up against the idea of what a novel um, is or could mm -hmm. be 
that entire process of it, not just a novel that bounces up against that, but a novel like uh, looking at that process itself, which um, is an interesting idea um, in connection with like that compromise of using the language that you have. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's sort of like not trying to to break anything down, but just trying to um, to exist with what you have mm-hmm. been given. Um, and that existence is also a, a sentiment that I love and uh, a pin that I actually have on my backpack that I wear every day, um, which says trying not to die. And you have the practice of not dying. Um, this sort of interesting uh, tense put on that idea, not uh, mm-hmm. living per se, not is it active, is it passive, what and what that uh, experiment looks like for everyone. Um, so I love all of those ideas coming together here. And then let's see, I'm going to got a bunch of great questions here. Thank you everyone so much. Okay, so the first one is, I'm wondering about the vulnerability it took to write and publish this book in comparison to A History of My Brief Body. Yeah, both vulnerable experiences, but particular ones. So when I remember a week before A History of My Brief Body published, I was in bed one night (laughs) after scrolling on Twitter and looking at YouTube videos for too long. And I was like, oh no, like I'm about to publish some incredibly like revealing information about myself or, you know, people I care about anywhere who I think, you know, admire and whatnot are going to see. (laughs) And, um, you know, what is, what does that mean for our relationship after that? You know, it it obviously meant nothing and be, you know, we're, we're all human and we all (laughs) divulge our secrets in some way or another. I, I just happen to do it in a book. Um, but with the novel, I the vulnerability I felt was around technique and, and and craft, and you know, trying to insert myself into a history that is just so vast—the history of the genre of the novel. You know, and my my book is about a, a sort of a small, humble offering <laughs> that I wasn't totally sure. I wasn't sure how it was going to land for readers. You know, I, I've, I've seen some, you know, folks say that uh, it, it, it doesn't quite feel like a novel. And, you know, that's because I, I think it's, I think of like the way that Roland Barthes' Morning Diary was described as a hypothesis of a book. I think in a way this, A Minor Course is a hypothesis of a novel. Um, and it, so it's meant, I intended it to pressurize normative expectations when the, the, the label of a novel is applied to a book. And then let's see, there's one that was a little bit along those lines or just on the craft, uh, itself. Uh, Rebecca said, I haven't devoured a text like this since Bell Hooks, All About Love. As an Indigenous woman, this novel felt healing to read. What was your experience writing it? (laughs) Yeah, so Rebecca is one of my dear um, mentors Mm -hmm. and colleagues. (laughs) So thank you for being here. Um, I started writing this book when I was still in Edmonton. I had finished my coursework for my PhD. and had written something like a draft of my dissertation. And I didn't really have anything to do. And I was lonely <laughs> and a little depressed and still figuring out what I was gonna do with my life. And I began going to cafes, spending entire afternoons there writing. I do think it was a way of both writing into and out of that experience of depression. 
but also the first character that came to me and what was the the seed of the novel was for the character of Michael, who I don't think it's any kind of spoiler to say that he is um, an older man who lives in northern Alberta who is closeted and he sort of never comes out and doesn't intend to. I think why I was drawn to a character like him, probably because as a closeted teen myself, I imagined that that was my fate as well, that I would never be able to come out. And so there was that emotional attachment, but also because I figured that there had, there had, you know, my hunch is that there are people like him in places like Northern Alberta. And I wondered what it would mean to commune with someone like Michael and to, um, you know, the, the character thanks Michael because he remembers him from his childhood, from his adolescence. And he says, even his grief was a lighthouse for a boy whose future had no shape to it. And I, I, so it's an act of homage to, I suppose, you know, queer, queer ancestry. But once I sort of started writing into these characters, um, I eventually had to send a, a draft to my agent. And I remember being like, is this even a novel? What am I doing? <laughs> Can you please give me a sense of, you know, uh, where I'm, where, where I'm headed with this. And, you know, she very, you know, kindly responded with encouragement and was sort of affirmed that it was a novel. And then on the note of discovering things as you're writing, um, we have a question. I haven't read a minor chorus yet, but I'm looking forward to it. I'm wondering how this novel is influenced by your previous work. As writers, it seems that we're writing through our experiences to discover who we are. Is that true for you? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There was a bit of overlap and I was finishing a history of my brief body and starting a minor course. So I, I, so I wrote them at, it, it feels, I wrote them, it feels like I wrote them concurrently. And so of course there's some sort of bleeding over. Uh, and I, I see all my books so far as part of uh, one larger uh, poetic project but what, what it means to desire freedom against the sort of grain of colonial violence. But uh, the second part of the, uh, yeah, but sort of coming into oneself, you know, through writing, I, I think that is a fair assessment and that the, 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 Protagonist reflects in, at the start of the novel that he wants in part to write a novel because he hopes, he wants to write a novel about where he came from and the people who live there because he hopes that it'll bring him some deeper knowledge about who he will be, not who he is in the present, but his future self. Um, and I, just, I share that sentiment as, as a, a writer myself that we're sort of writing into our future selves. So for everyone that has read a minor chorus uh, already, there are some answers to this question in that book, but we'll get yeah. <laughs> um, uh, Susan asks, I was first introduced to your work with A History of My Big Body and found that work to be profound, sad, beautiful, and intelligent. What writers inspire you in your writing? endeavors mm -hmm. uh, again another question that the book um, answers in a way but um, I, there are a number of, of writers who I read because I love their work 
And then there are other writers um, who help make my work more possible. I think one of those writers is Dion Brand. She is a visionary poet and thinker here in Canada who accomplishes so, so much, but especially her in, enduring insistence on uh, writing political poetry and in, in sort of infusing politics into aesthetic life, I think is what has inspired me immeasurably. I think also you know, one of the, one of the first books of poetry I read in its entirety was um, Ocean Vong's Night Sky with Exit Wounds. I know every sort of queer poet is, <laughs> a, you know, not every, but a lot of queer poets are a fan of that book. But, you know, just something as, as seemingly simple as, you know, writing poems from you know, one's uh, racialized queer life, like that was mine, you know, uh, boggling to me. And it sort of gave me, it authorized me to also do that for my own, you know, racialized queer life. And of course, all the indigenous writers, um, I, I, keep, I, I, can't, I keep thinking about um, the generation of indigenous writers in Canada, writing in the 90s in particular, at a time when literary work was saturated with whiteness and you know cis heteropatriarchy. These are writers like Lee Miracle and Gregory Schofield. Um, and how the work that I do and other indigenous writers in my generation uh, the work that they do would not be possible without the sort of the sort of radical insistence on the part of that generation of indigenous writers um, to write from lived experience and to write about the colonial condition in particular. And like we said, there are you can you can see more of them in the minor chorus of a minor chorus there mm -hmm. there are a lot of other influences in there as well a great book to sort of use and like make a list of things to go and read um which is also one of my favorite kinds of books <laughs> um a book that tells me to go read more books right. um, <laughs> and then uh i have we'll end on this uh this one question this one last question i have although we could we could keep talking forever, but um, what did working in the medium of the novel break open for you regarding working within other mediums? Mm -hmm. So what, what kinds of things do you, uh, you want to work on now? If working on this novel either uh, presented those possibilities to you or if there uh -huh. are things that you haven't, um, haven't tried out yet my other favorite sort of side of this question is are there mediums that you're afraid to try um that you don't know if you'll ever try because you're just right. not sure about them um or if you can see far enough into the future that you know you'll get to them at some point mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. at one point i remember saying that i would i was never going to write a novel <laughs> and they did so <laughs> it's hard to but um I have been asked if I'm going to write a more conventional novel now, <laughs> now that I got my like postmodern experiment <laughs> out of the way. Um, you know, I, I I don't know how to answer that question because I I'm I'm not currently writing a novel. Um I don't know whether it would continue in this postmodernist vein or if it would be more conventional. Um but I, I'm trying to write more poems again, you know, as is evidenced by that poem I read earlier. I, I sort of returning to that mode. I'm also been I've also been working on short stories. 
and they have been trying to reason with the form rather than dismantle it. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. uh, and there is a character that I wrote a short from the novel that I wrote a short story about because I I just didn't feel like that I had finished with that character. So um, that's a bit of a teaser, I guess. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> you can go read a minor chorus and then hang out and wait for Billy Ray Belcourt's uh, potential upcoming collection of short stories, conventional or not, <laughs> to be determined. <laughs> um, thank you all so much for joining us and for your lovely questions. Thank you, Billy Ray, for taking the time to chat with us about a minor chorus, a book. Uh, Rebecca, that I also devoured for any of our guests who haven't gotten their copy yet, you will devour it too. You can grab one from Skylight Books and order one using the shiny green button at the bottom of your screen there, along with all of Billy Ray's other works, which you should also read because they are wonderful and inspiring and joy-filling as well. Um, yep, everybody's, everybody's ready for the ones they haven't read yet. Um, and we were so happy to have you here. We hope that you will come visit us next time you're in LA. Um, and we wish you all of the best with this tour and whatever comes next for you. For all of our guests, thank you so much for joining us. And if you know someone who missed this conversation and you think might enjoy it, it will be available for replay in just a few minutes. So you can send people to it at the same link and use that link to share it with others uh, so that they can listen to it find some more info on a minor chorus and enjoy it and start thinking about it thank you all so much thanks billy ray thank you so much for the conversation it was really lovely bye everyone have a good night thank you for listening to the skylight books podcast series please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on twitter and instagram Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.